congregation, we come now to this uh, section that gives us the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, as I begin to uh, frame this, this story here that we're given about the Tower of Babel, let me tell you, uh, I, I used to work at Puritan Seminary. You're very well aware of that. And there was one time, dear friends, when I was standing in a hallway and I could hear four different languages being spoken. One guy was talking in Swahili to somebody on the phone. He was a man from uh, Zambia. He was talking Swahili, which you know is a very common language actually in Africa. Another man was speaking Dutch. He was in the lunchroom and he was sitting at a table and he was talking to someone and they were talking in the Dutch language. And then there were two more languages, which I can't remember yet what they were. But I remember I was standing there hearing four different languages being spoken. And it struck me uh, in the first place of how privileged I was to be able to work in a place where we had so many of God's people from so many different places of the world. There was a great diversity of Christians at the seminary where I worked. And that was such a wonderful privilege and blessing for me to be there. And yet... When we stop to ponder it, my friends, the very fact that I could hear four different languages, and there were many more languages spoken at the seminary, was a result of God's curse on the earth. It was a result of sin, I should say. It was a result of sin. And that's what we're given in our passage today. That God God comes down to disrupt the wickedness and the plans of men by multiplying these languages and therefore causing them to scatter. But our story this evening begins in Genesis chapter 10. Now, we want to read this very closely, don't we? And in verse 5, we read from these... Well, let's just, let's just start back in... Uh, well, let's read chapter 10, verse 5. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Isn't that interesting, friends? And we've seen this before in the book of Genesis. That the author will give us a situation that is already in existence. And then, in the next chapter, or the next section, he goes to explain how that situation came to be. Because in verse 1 of chapter 11, we read, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. But in chapter 10 and verse 5, we read, From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands. In other words, what we read uh, of what happened in Genesis 11, it has already happened in Genesis 10. They're already separated into their lands, and everyone speaking their own language, according to their families, into their nations. And if you remember, we saw that before. In fact, we saw that in the very first verse of the Bible. Right? You remember in the very first verse of the Bible, it said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it went to explain and to give details and to expand on how that happened. So this is a pattern that we see from uh, the way Moses uh, wrote these narratives out for us in, 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 in in this book. And then how many of us remember also in Genesis 1 when it said, when God said that he created man, male and female, created he them. And then in Genesis 2, God zooms in and gives us much more detail about exactly how he did that. So this is a, a, a something we've come to expect from the book of Genesis. Now, of course, immediately the critics, right, 
in which would include all your college professors, uh, many of your even Christian college professors, would immediately conclude that this is a contradiction. That one author gave us Genesis 10, and another author gave us Genesis 11. Now, my friends, that, 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 that smacks of... of uh, it's not credible, even just pre- the way it's presented. Because even in normal human books, you know, putting aside for a minute divine inspiration, but even in normal human books, we don't expect a normal human author to put one thing here and then a contradictory thing here. That's just not something you would expect of any normal historical book. And yet, for some reason, people apply a different Well, We know it's not for some reason. It's for a heart reason. That people come to the book of, of Genesis and conclude immediately that these must have different authors. Because, after all, they contradict each other. When, as I've said, we've seen this pattern in the book of Genesis. That a general truth will be stated, God created man. Male and female created he them. And then a whole other chapter will expand on exactly how God did that. It's not two different authors. It's one author who has a particular way of explaining things that might be a bit confusing to us. Maybe we don't think that particular way, but there's nothing contradictory in there, and there's nothing there beneath what divine revelation will give us. And so this is nothing unusual. In chapter 10, we have a situation given us. The nations, all scattered over the earth, each speaking their own language. And now our author... Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, comes to expand on that, to explain that. That's what we have in verse 32. It even kind of hints at that, doesn't it? These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. And now I'm going to explain to you how that happened. And then verse 11. Now the whole earth, in other words, before Genesis 10, as Noah and his family came off the ark, and as they began to multiply, and as they began to grow, this was the situation. There was one language, they all used the same vocabulary, the same words. So that's Genesis 10 in its relation to Genesis 11. So now we come to the story that we're given in Genesis 11. Now notice we have people who are journeying east. They are migrating, as it were, moving east. And they find a plain in the land of Shinar, a very flat piece of ground suitable for a city, and they decide, let's put down roots here. Let's settle here. Let's build a city, they said. Let's make bricks, right? Bricks is not something portable, right? They want to build a lasting city. This is not a stopping way on on the way to something else, right? No, this is, here's where we're going to put down our roots. Come, let us make bricks. Let's burn them thoroughly. In other words, make them strong, permanent, something that will last. And they used brick for stone and tar for mortar. So we have the what. We have the what. They are going to build a city. Come, they say in verse 4, let us build for ourselves a city. Now, my friends, at this point, you have this, this, this people, a large group of people, I would imagine it was. We're not told, but I imagine it's a rather large group of people who come to this place, and they're going to build a city. Now, you know, uh, we all know this, right, that in unity, there is strength, right? We have to come together. We have to work together. And these people understand that, too. They need, they need to come together. They need to work together if they're going to advance their cause, if they're going to live in society and produce a civilization. And so all these different peoples who have come together say, we need, uh, as it were, a symbol of this unity, 
We need a symbol. And that is going to be then this tower. Verse 4, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And actually, the Hebrew uh, should be translated, and a tower, the top of which is in heaven. The top of which is in heaven. Not, not like it's just going to point to it, but it's actually going to be in heaven. Whatever heaven would have meant to these people. Again, whether they really understood uh, these people uh, being so depraved at this point that heaven was the dwelling place of God or the gods, maybe, as they thought, whatever it may have meant to them, they were going to make a symbol of their unity. And they're going to build this tower. It will reach into heaven. Its top will be in heaven. And then we're told the why. This is the reason why they need a tower. Let us make for ourselves a name. In other words, they want to establish themselves for themselves a reputation. They want to take pride in their city, and this tower is going to make for themselves a name. Right? We know that many buildings are built for that purpose in our world, right? They're built to make the person a name. And another reason is given us, that's the first reason, to make for ourselves a name. And the second reason, otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So in other words, it will be a symbol of our unity. It will bind us together. This tower will bring us together as a people so that we can stand united to work together to build this city. There's the why. To make a name and to avoid being scattered over all the earth. Now, we're, we're now uh, we come to the problem. We come to this problem because in verse 5 we read, The Lord came down. And by the way, you see again how God is represented in human forms. Right? We know the sovereign, all-knowing, omnipotent God does not need to go anywhere. He is everywhere. Right? But again, the Bible has given us to us in this kind of language. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they, will, this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So God has a problem with what they're doing. The problem is not that they're building a city. The problem is not that they're building a tower. The problem here, my friends, is that they're doing this in union with each other. They have come together and consolidated their power, united, they've joined forces, not to do something godly, but in rebellion against God. Some people have read these verses as if it speaks rather low of God, as if God, in verse 6, is seeing the, the men building the Tower of Babel as rivals. But no, my friends, it's It's not rivals. I think what you have here should be read in the spirit and in the light of the second psalm. And that's really the text that I chose this morning. I put this at the top, or this evening. I put it at the top of the outline there. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the spirit of rebellion that is animating and driving forward this project of building a city 
and building a tower. And in in the second psalm, we're not told that God looks at these people as rivals, but that he sits in the heavens. And what? You remember? He laughs. He laughs at the folly of created man trying to build a tower, the top of which will be in heaven, the dwelling place of God himself. The Lord sits in the heavens, says the second psalm, and he laughs. But he also recognizes that when these people come together, what they're saying is actually true. That united, they will find a greater strength than they would if they all remained separate. The Apostle Paul makes a reference to something like this and gives us something of a clue, I think, to understand this. Because Paul, and I put that verse down there in Acts 17, in 26, he says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. This is the reason God made man, that they would seek God. They might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So God had created man to seek after him, to reach for him, as it were. But now man is doing the opposite, consolidating and unifying and building this tower. Now that's from Acts 17, but actually, my friends, there's another reason why this is a problem that's much closer at hand. What is the command that God had given to his created people in Genesis 1 and then again in Genesis 9? Do you remember? Remember the mandate that God had given his people, his creatures. In Genesis 1 and repeated again in Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, God had said. Fill the earth. Multiply. And now these men are doing the opposite. They're coming together. They're consolidating. They're going to build one city with one tower. You might say they're, they're going directly contrary to the purpose of God for the world. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They say, here is a nice place to live. Let's build our city and our tower here, and let's all work together. Let's stay unified. Let's stay one. And there would not be that multiplication that God had looked for and mandated his creatures to do. So you might say, even in that, they're working against the purposes of God. And God sees that evil. And he decided he decides to bring an end to it. John Wesley made an interesting suggestion here, which I think bears, bears, uh, could very well be true. John Wesley supposes that there are probably were people who remained faithful to God. Right? In every age, there have always been people who remained faithful to God, that faithful remnant who stayed true to the teachings of Noah and of Shem and of Japheth and who didn't go off into this depravity and this rebellion against God. And that now it could very well be that if these people are allowed to consolidate and to unify their power around one people group, that they would gain so much power that they'd be able to conquer and to swallow up and to destroy this faithful remnant. Now, there's nothing about that in Genesis 11. But you notice that we read from the psalm, when we read Psalm 14, it did kind of 
hint. Now, I'm not sure that Psalm 14 is making a reference to the Tower of Babel. But in Psalm 14, we had read in verse 4, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So it's very possible what Wesley has suggested there. That part of the reason here is that uh, God is seeking to protect his faithful remnant. Well, and that brings us then to the result. The result of God's work. Because what does God do? He scatters them. He does not destroy them. God had already promised after the flood that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And so we read that God comes down and he confuses their language so that they do not understand one another's speech. And this is why we have the situation in Genesis 10, where all the different nations are separated into different lands and different countries, each according to its own language. And I loved that quote from Alfred Edersheim, himself a Jew, uh, a Christian, but still a Jew. And he writes, And by this simple means, without any outward visible interference, did the Lord arrest the grandest attempt of man's rebellion, and by confounding their language, scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, or confusion. And then I italicize this. This is my italics, not uh, Edersheim's italics. What a commentary does this history afford to the majestic declarations of the second psalm? That's actually what clued me in to look at the second psalm. And really, these passages belong together, don't they? The second psalm teaches us how the kings of the earth came together against God's anointed. And God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He does not destroy them, but he simply multiplies the languages. And therefore, they are scattered all over the earth. Well, my friends, that brings me then to make some points of application on these truths. And the first thing is, what a, what a, uh, the language. I want to make some comments there about language. Because here we see from this scripture, don't we, that language and the different languages that we see in our world today are a result of sin. And I can testify, my friends, to what a, what a curse it is to have to deal with different languages. How much work even Christian work, even work that advances the kingdom of God is, is hindered and stymied by all the different languages that exist in the world. And again, working at the seminary, I was the director of distance education. And you could think with great enthusiasm how we can now bring the, the, the teaching of Reformed theology to Brazil and to China and to Slovakia, all these nations where we had into Egypt Right, All these different nations, and, and especially in the Spanish world, Reformed theology is so popular. There's such a thirst for, for Reformed theology in the Spanish world. And every time we ran up against the same barrier, all of our teaching is in English. All of our books are in English. And here we run up against this constant barrier of having to translate everything. I guess I, I felt in a special way as the director of distance education the awful barrier this presents to the spread even of good God-honoring teaching. And what a blessing it was when we would find, I'm telling you, 
there was nothing, no person was more valuable in the seminary, okay, than somebody who could speak accurately both languages. We found a Chinese person who could do that. Why, we'd pay that man a million dollars a year if he, would, if he would join our, I'm exaggerating, right, but if he would join the organization so he could do this kind of work, translate our material accurately into another language. And Brazilian men who, who did this, you remember uh, Pastor Felipe who did my ordination ser- or my installation sermon here. Uh, again, you know, in so many ways, we ache, I ache to help this person and to help provide him with, with material, but it's always in English. And everything has to be in the Portuguese. And so you think, well, then maybe it would be better if the Portuguese people learned English. Well, that's not very nice, is it? But always, we are up against this language barrier, aren't we? I remember in, in, a, in one of the projects that was taking place in Colombia was a man a man who was burning with zeal for Reformed theology, he took the lectures that we took at the seminary and he would, he would uh, uh, put in subtitles of Spanish. So, he, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He, so, so the lecturer would be lecturing in English. And what he did was he ripped out the audio from the video and, and uh, put in Spanish audio. Now, of course, this isn't ideal, is it? Here's the lecturer talking in English. And he's talking in English, right? But there's no audio. The audio comes from the man who's now taken the English and put it into Spanish. And that's how they were listening to the lectures of Reformed theology in the Spanish world. Again, trying to overcome this, this punishment, this curse that God brought upon mankind in the multiplication of languages. But my friends, this evening, in this point of application about uh, language, is that God himself has already taken the first step to resolve this issue. Because what happened on the day of Pentecost? God gave unique gifts to the apostles to speak in languages that they had never learned. And we are taught in Acts chapter 2 that every people group heard the wonderful works of God in their own tongue. What does that mean, my friends? That means that when Jesus Christ came into this world and he sets up his kingdom here, as he began to do on Christmas Day, and as he will ultimately do on the second coming, but in Pentecost, we have another chapter, you might say, of the kingdom of God being established on this earth. And we saw already that it's possible. I know we we, we long that this would, would happen continually. We don't see it happening. And God in his sovereignty has not decided to do it. But yet already in Pentecost, we had a taste, a seed, as it were, planted, that God himself will one day remove the barrier of language. And all God's people will speak the same language. And I smile, my friends, because we don't know what language that will be. Maybe it's best that we call it the language of Canaan or something like that. But it will be a language that we all know and that we all can understand and that we'll all speak. And so even in the, in the language barrier, my friends, we see both a testimony to God's severity, his curse upon sinful man, but also when we think of Pentecost, God's mercy to his sinful people, that he will reverse that curse and bring back one language for all his people. I come now to the second point of antithesis, and I put antithesis again because I know I brought this up in so many sermons I didn't intend to do that, my friends. 
I didn't intend that it would be that way, but it comes up in so many of these passages in Genesis that I don't want to overlook it. Because here I return to a previous sermon where we speak about the gifts that God has given to all people. And we see such a beautiful example, not a beautiful, a horrible example, a terrible example of both God's favor generally to all people and also of this antithesis, of this enmity that man has against God. Here come these people, my friends. They are the enemies of God. They are depraved people. They have set their hearts against God. And yet, they can build a city. There are architects there. There are people who know how to burn bricks and to make bricks. There are people there who know how to build of stone with mortar and tar. And my friends, even more so, there are people there who know how to build a tower and who know how to plan the different stages of the construction of that tower. Where did they get all those gifts, my friend? All those gifts came from the divine giver who gives even to the wicked the ability to do these things. And now we see the antithesis right alongside God's common gifts of favor, of his favor to wicked people. Because no sooner do they have these gifts, my friends, but that they turn them against God. And that's what James has taught us. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And that's what we see. Here we see these people who take the very gifts that God has given them and turn them to go very contrary to the purpose of God. I I, I find this really one of the best examples in Scripture of, of those two twin truths that have come down to us, especially in the Dutch Reformed churches, of God's common favor to all people, but also how they immediately turn that favor against God and against his anointed. The Tower of Babel stands as a testimony to God's goodness and man's rebellion. I know some of you are wondering why Whitney Houston is listed under application too. Well, you know, Whitney Houston was a woman who also personifies, in my mind, this these gifts that God gives to people. You know, she died in 2012. And I remember this came up at the seminary at our prayer time. They mentioned that Whitney Houston had passed away. And my friends, Whitney Houston uh, was a woman who had uncommon ability to sing. If you don't believe me, you can go on YouTube and watch her sing the, the, the national anthem. Nobody's ever sung like that, to my knowledge. She had an unbelievable gift of singing. And you know where she got her start singing? New Hope Baptist Church. The very first song that she sung publicly was Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. But we know where Whitney Houston ended up and where she continued to sing and how she continued to sing. It's a sad story, my friends. It's actually a heartbreaking story that this woman who had such amazing gifts and then she turned around and used them to advance immorality and sin. And that's why I raise her. She came to my mind as I was preparing this message this week. I thought she's such an interesting example 
of what we understand in this Tower of Babel, of someone who took the very gifts that God had given her and then turned them to the advantage and to the advancement of sin. Proverbs 11, verse 22, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And children, what would you think about a general who handed out weapons to all his soldiers? And then his soldiers turned and used those weapons to kill the general. And yet that's the depravity of man that we see. Taking the very gifts of God and using them to tear down the kingdom of God. To unite against the kingdom of God. And that's the sad truth of the antithesis. My friends, I move to my third point of application. This actually is the title of the sermon, The Preaching of the Half-Built Tower. You know, in in a sense, my friends, I, I, I don't want you to see me this evening. I want you to see that half-built tower, that unfinished tower of Babel, and I want that tower to preach to you tonight, and especially uh, my dear young people. For you, uh, with all your dreams and your aspirations that you have in life, to see this half-built tower, do you see it tonight? I want you to look it full in the face, because that tower preaches tonight. It has a message for you. This tower is a monument to all what men and women can do apart from God. Apart from God. In that sense, my friends, this this sermon this evening, it, it, it pairs rather nicely with the sermon we heard this morning. We were challenged and convicted to pursue Christ likeness to pursue following Christ and doing his commandments. And this evening, we hear of a people who pursued exactly the opposite. And the Tower of Babel, my friends, stands before you tonight as a preacher. It has a message for you. This is man's best effort apart from God. And I want you to hear that message, my friends, tonight. You know what happened to Whitney Houston, if I can refer to her again? Her first public song was Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, sung in the New Hope Baptist Church. Her last public song was Jesus Loves Me. And she was found dead, drowned in a bathtub in a hotel, probably induced from drugs. And my friends, I don't, I don't get any delight in holding up Whitney Houston this evening. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an icon of our culture to me that represents exactly what I'm trying. No, not me. It's not me, my friends. Exactly what the Tower of Babel is preaching to you this evening. So much skill. So much talent. And such a waste. And young people... Look me in the eye tonight. When you set out on your life with all the different things that you hope to accomplish, 
And when you think of these two paths that you can walk, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, this pathway set before you, know that the best you can hope for in life, if you choose to go without God, is an unfinished tower. You may get a long way on that tower. That tower may be have great promise, but it will be unfinished. That tower preaches to us this evening, my friends, that when we line up behind the serpent, the best we can come up with is a half-built tower. You know, another thing about Whitney Houston is she had a daughter. She had one daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, who also was found dead in a bathtub at age 22. Dear young friends, think about that tonight. Because you make decisions in your life of who you're going to follow. And this tower stands before you and preaches to you, don't make a wreck of your life. If you choose to follow the seed of the serpent, your tower will end unfinished a monument to man's rebellion against God. But tonight, my friends, you can resolve to walk with the Lord. You can resolve with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul to walk with the seed, the child of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then whatever you gain, whatever you accomplish in this life, my friends, will be infinitely more satisfying than this unfinished tower that stands before us tonight. I hope that vision goes with you, my friends, and to the older ones as well. We all need the same thing, don't we? This unfinished tower may it preach to us this evening, and may we have ears to hear it. My friends, this brings to an end my, my series of sermons on Genesis 11, or 1 through 11. It's it's not a very nice place to end, is it? But I wanted to preach through these first chapters of Genesis because I I was so convicted that there's so many answers. Remember the organization that prompted this. Answers in Genesis. There's so much of our Christian worldview that is based upon all the truths we found in these chapters of Genesis. And so really, everything else, my friends, that we preach on and that we discuss and teach from this pulpit, it all is anchored in these chapters. And don't worry, I, I fully intend to go back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12 begins with Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. And so you might say the half-finished tower that preached to us this evening is replaced by a finished tower, right? Which is God's covenant with Abraham, which is God's covenant of grace, which never fails, which began in eternity and will be consummated in eternity to come. And so that's a glorious message. But this brings to an end this series. In the future sermons, we hope to look at some Advent messages as we prepare for the coming of Christmas. But I pray that God's blessing would rest upon these messages and that they would be useful and helpful to us as we seek to walk in God's way and to follow the child of the woman.
who has given us in these chapters. May God bless it to us. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this evening, having looked full in the face of this unfinished tower. Lord, we wonder in our minds for how many years, decades, centuries perhaps, that tower stood there. And how many people walked past it wondering and thinking. How many people were perhaps led to repentance when they saw the folly of the kings of the earth taking counsel together against you and against your anointed. But Lord, we wonder this, this, this evening, how many of us, O oh God, will hear the preaching of this tower? Lord, we pray earnestly for our young people as they set out in life. Many of them, Lord, are very ambitious and have dreams of this or of that. Lord, we're thankful for those dreams. We're thankful for that ambition. We're thankful for their zeal and for their earnestness. But we long to see, O oh God, that their heart would be right with you. That they would be faithful and without reproach in their generation as Noah was in his. Lord, I pray that as a congregation we would go forward together, standing on the truth that we have found in these chapters. And I pray, O oh God, that we might live lives that honor and glorify your name. And that when we stand before you one day, we would not just have an unfinished tower to speak of, but that we would have an eternal covenant of grace, a covenant which you made with your Son in eternity past, and a covenant, Lord, which we can participate here in time and which we can look forward to in hope and to a never-ending eternity. Lord, please bless us then. Keep us close to you. And may your name be glorified in our lives and in the lives of our children and in the lives of our children's children. Hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal and sing in closing number 399. After that, we'll sing the doxology, which is printed for you in the bulletin, or it's number 488 in the blue hymnal, also in the blue hymnal. So first we'll sing 399. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. And after that, number 488 in the blue hymnal.
the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.